0: Welcome to the litigation room, where it happens, a Rivero Mestre podcast.: Hi everyone. My name is Zalman Cass. I'm an attorney at the law firm of Rivero Mestre. I will be making this podcast today with a coworker of mine, Julio Paez. Julio, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Julio Páez. I am also an attorney at Rivero Maestri. I started in the firm the same day with Salman around January 2013. I am also a lawyer from Venezuela with an LLM in financial law.
0: And Julio, when you say you're from Venezuela, were you originally born there?
1: Yes, I'm originally from Venezuela.
0: Ah, entonces hablas español fluidamente. Yes. Como yo, ¿sí? Más o menos, Marco. Vale, voy a tener un poquito de errores, pero mira, soy gringo, tengo una excusa. Perfecto. Vale, vamos a continuar en inglés.
1: Today's topic is don't rely on camels.
0: Julio, I think we need to do a little explaining as to that topic because I would imagine that most of our audience is probably... I don't know if confused, but they're wondering because camels are generally seen as pretty reliable animals. They are used across the world. They cross deserts. They don't need to drink a lot of water. They seem to be pretty reliable and pretty dependable. So could you explain a little bit more to our audience what we're talking about when we say don't rely on camels?
1: It's not a camels that you're talking about right now. We're talking about a camel score. The rating that the FDIC gives banks to assess their performance, specifically capital adequacy, asset quality, management, earning, liquidity, and sensitivity.
0: So, Julio, if you take the C from capital adequacy, the A from asset quality, the M from management, the E from earnings, the L from liquidity, and the S from sensitivity, that comes together to be the acronym of CAMELS, correct?
1: You're right, Tom. Um,
0: And that's what you're referring to when you say don't rely on camels.
1: I agree. Again.
0: So now that we've explained to our audience what we're talking about, I think we also now need to explain why they shouldn't rely on camels. And like many things, this will take a little bit of explaining. Now, you previously mentioned camels is a rating score given by the FDIC, and I think To understand a little bit more about the CAMELs and the FDIC, we really should start from the beginning, what the FDIC is, and I think that'll help lay the groundwork. The FDIC was founded in the 1930s after the Great Recession, when many banks failed due to bank runs. And one of the reasons why it was founded was to prevent bank runs and to provide stability in the banking and financial industry. I think now would be a good time to explain what is a bank run and what what is a failed bank. Just a little bit more background. As a general rule, most people understand basic banking, but I'm going to give a very short primer, is that depositors give money to banks to hold as a deposit. The bank will then pay the depositor interest. The bank then lends out that money to a borrower. Now the bank does all the money that somebody gives to the bank to deposit the bank doesn't have on hand because they lent it out to somebody else. And a bank run happens is when all the depositors want to go to the bank at the same time and get back their deposits. That's something the bank cannot do because they already lent out all that money. They'll have a little bit on hand, some liquidity, but they can't give everybody at the same time. So that is typically called a bank run. And when that happens, it's essentially a bank failure because the bank cannot give everybody their money back. They do not have it at that point in time. They have the assets, but it's not liquid. Uh, Julio, have there been any bank runs in recent memory in the U.S.?
1: Uh, Some. Uh, bank runs were in the thirties, Thorin 1931, 1932, that finished with the creation of the FDIC in 1933. But now, more recently, we can make similitude. With scarcity in toilet paper, people behave in different ways during a crisis. It's all psychology. When they started the pandemic, you went to the supermarket and you saw the the shelf that usually carry a lot of toilet papers empty. People think that they need a toilet paper and they accumulate toilet paper and that behavior that creates non-liquidity in toilet paper.
0: Julio, as far as we're aware, was there any disruption in the manufacture and supply of toilet paper?
1: No, the, um, I'm aware of. The thing is, all the people at the same time wanted toilet paper, and that created the scarcity in toilet paper.
0: And, and that's the same thing what happens when bank runs. Everybody wants their money at the same time. They may not need it right now, but they're, they're taking their money because they think they may not happen unless they get it now, which is the same thing like the toilet paper. People bought toilet paper for the future because they think they may not be able to buy it in the future, creating the problem. And so, Julio, to prevent these bank runs from ha- happening again in the future, the FDIC guarantees certain deposits that people make in financial institutions that are insured. I believe currently it's 250,000 per account per borrower per account type per deposit institution that is insured. But the general idea is though, is if people believe that their finances are insured, then there's or the deposits are insured, there's no run to the bank to try and get it first thereby creating a liquidity crisis.
1: They created an insurance, okay, that is going to work with the psychology of the people and the people feel a peace of mind.
0: Now, Julio, I guess the next question is, though, is this would only work if we know the FDIC has the financial wherewithal to actually reimburse people, their deposits, if necessary. I know you did a little research on the FDIC's finances. What, what did you find?
1: Well, it's balance sheet for... Uh, 2019 showed almost $6 billion in cash and cash equivalents. And it has over $100 billion in Treasury security notes that have ready market for, for them. Also, the FDIC has a borrowing authority of $100 billion from the Treasury and no purchases agreement with the Federal Financial Bank. It's got lots of cash.
0: Correct. And also, there's all, Julio. There's the added point that typically, if a bank gets shut down and you're a depositor in that bank, the FDIC doesn't need to just give you a cut, you a check and pay you back. What actually happens is the FDIC will sell all the po- deposits, which are the liabilities, and all the assets, which are the loans, to an assuming bank, and your account will just transfer over, and you could take your money out at will. So instead of having your your deposit in Bank X, it's in Bank Z. Now selling. A bank to another bank does cost the FDIC some money, but it's not simply just giving everybody all their their deposits back. Because don't forget, the bank typically still has some assets, which will balance out the liabilities of the depositor. So it's a little, it's less money than we would typically think you actually would need.
1: Yes. That, having said that, as you said, the bank, the FDIC, closed one bank, and the next day you're going to have your deposits and your loans. With the, with the acquirer at, uh, institution, uh, another financial institution.
0: Julio, we've talked about one function of the FDIC is an insurance function. It also has a regulatory function, at least for certain financial institutions. And it, it's most people don't know this, but the FDIC is actually a bank regulator. And Julio, could you explain a little bit more about what the FDIC does as a bank regulator?
1: The regulators are the entities that make the rules by which banks must govern their business. Some rules are limited on capital requirement, interest rates, and also regulate lending guidelines as loan-to-value, loan-to-cost, high equity, on, in how to keep the records.
0: So I guess the second function of the FTC is that for certain banks, I'm not saying all banks, it depends on how the bank's structured, but for some banks, FTC is the regulator. And then there's also a third function, which is also as a regulator, in addition to setting the rules, it also does examinations of banks. And what they'll do is they'll go into a bank either on an annual basis or every other year. Again, that depends. And they will go through the bank's loan policies. They'll go through their board meeting minutes. They'll go through the loan. They'll pretty much go through the whole bank. And then they're gonna put together a report There's going to be many pages and there they will, and and it's essentially, it's addressed to the directors of the institution saying, this is how your bank's doing. This is what needs to be improved. This is what's fine. And that's, again, those are all the different parts of the the CAMELS acronym, the capital and, and all, and the assets and all of that throughout the CAMELS. And then you'll get a CAMELS score. And that's going to be, I believe from one through five, one being the best. So now, we've explained a little bit more in concrete where the FDIC and the CAMEL score goes together. Now, in addition to using that investigation of the bank or that inspection of the bank to speak to bank management to let them know how they're doing and whether they need to be improved, the FDIC also uses that investigation for their own purposes to determine whether a bank should be shut down. Now, Julio, previously we've talked about banks can run into liquidity problems when they don't have enough liquid assets to meet the deposits that are being withdrawn. But banks can also get into problems with their capital. So could you explain what is a bank's capital and what does it mean when a bank has insufficient capital?
1: Well, let's start off with what is a bank's capital and then we move on what is inadequate capital. There are various forms of capital, but at basic level, The first is earned capital. Example, uh, the money made by the bank through fees and interest after subtracting costs. You see your bank statement and you're going to see sometimes a lot of fees. You don't like it, but the bank like it and that's how they make money. Also, part of the capital comes from selling stock. It could be the initial offering when the bank was created or within the life. of the bank, the bank can issue secondary offerings of equity and stocks. Banks need to maintain certain level of capital to act as a buffer for the loan losses, okay? To explain, if a bank takes a deposit for $5 and then lets out that $5, but the borrower doesn't pay back the $5, the bank still has the obligation to pay back the deposit. It will do, do so by using its own money, also known as capital, to pay back
0: the deposit. Basically, the bank's capital has to be used to cover loan losses. But, as usual, it's a little complicated because the way banks actually really do, and this is also their regulations on this, and this um, is in a very simplified form, is that what the bank will do is they'll take its entire capital. From that capital, they'll carve out a reserve called all A, triple L. And that reserve is to cover the amount of expected losses that they are going to have on their loan portfolio. Now, different losses, different loans have different risk profiles. So the more risky the loan is, then the higher the reserve they're going to put aside for potential loan losses. That's, so that's, that's the general general matter. Now, so right there, we see that just creating this allowance already takes away from a bank's capital, even before there actually is a loss to just making that reserve. Now, what got a lot of banks into trouble, especially in the Great Recession that, we, that happened in 2008, 2009, is that when borrowers stop paying money, stop paying their loans, well, then their loans, the loans are going to be more risky because it's less likely they're going to be paid back. So the banks have to then increase an allowance for loan losses, which will decrease their capital. The other thing that happened is that at some point in time, if a loan is asset backed, meaning the bank lent money, but there was also collateral, if the borrower is not paying their their loan payments, the, the loan will become collateral based. And then the amount of the allowance for loan losses will also depend on the value of the collateral. If the borrower is underwater, which means they owe more than the collateral, well, then there's a big, then there could be a chunk of the loan which the banks know they're never going to get recovered. So that's going to increase the reserve, decrease capital. So as the economy goes, so does the, the allowance for losses, which then shrinks the bank's capital. As your capital gets too low, you get into trouble, and the FDIC may shut you down if they are your regulator. I think we are getting into the part of the podcast that many have been waiting for, is why we cannot rely on the CAMELS ratings. So Julio, we've spoken about the FDIC as an insurer, as a regulator, and they also have another hat they wear, and that, that is they sue many directors and officers of banks that have been shut down. Julio, can you give us some stats on that?
1: The facts speak for themselves. and During the Great Recession, and in aftermath, that means during 2008 to 2013, the FDIC closed 489 banks. It brought lawsuits against directors and officers of those banks in 41% of them, of the time. In other words, they sued the directors and officers of approximately 200 banks. To pull off in context, from 2001 to 2007, the FDIC only closed 25 banks, the same amount of banks it closed in 2008. And within those years, in 2005 and 2006, it closed zero banks. In other words, there is a, a strong correlation between, between a declining economy and FDIC bank closures. Based on the FDIC conduct in the Great Recession, it's fair to assume that there may be a wave of bank closures and lawsuits.
0: Okay, Julio, thank you for that. Now, let's get back to the camels. In bringing their lawsuits against the directors and officers of the bank. And to be clear, it's FDIC as the receiver of the banks. It's a little bit more complex. Again, we're simplifying things a little bit because there's a limited amount of time in the podcast. But in bringing those lawsuits, the FDIC generally will allege that the, the directors and officers of the banks improperly approved specific loans and that those loans then caused losses to the bank. And to give you a concrete example of something the FDIC may allege was done wrong, is they may say, well, the loan to value for a specific loan was too high, or that the borrower hadn't put in sufficient equity into the loan. And there are many other specifics, but those are just two good examples. Now, what could happen is that there is a member of a board of directors of a bank right now, or a loan officer that sees The economic problems that are going on now, but that isn't very concerned because they do not think that they could get shut down because they know, hey, maybe in the past I had really good camels ratings. For the past five years, I've been getting ones and I've been getting twos. The FDIC isn't telling me that there is a problem with management, it isn't telling me that my loans are problematic. So, therefore, I'm okay. I shouldn't be too concerned. And I'm probably not, and I'm definitely not going to get sued. Well, this podcast is to tell you don't rely on the camels. And this is just a lesson from history. As we stated before, the FDIC sued almost 200 banks that they closed after the Great Recession. But what not a lot of people know is that in many of those banks, those banks were highly ranked also. They got ones, they got twos, and they're camels. And not only that is Many times the loans that the FDIC is alleging were improperly made Were made during those years when the loans were getting really high ratings. So you simply cannot rely on getting high ratings and thinking you're okay. So that's our big lesson. Do not rely on the camel's ratings. You need to be proactive and there are other things that you should be doing. Julio, could you tell everybody the second lesson?
1: Lesson number two. Don't believe that you will be protected from being shot down if you follow FDIC guidance. Uh, in these times, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the federal financial regulator agencies have issued guidelines on loan modifications by financial institutions working with customers affected by the coronavirus.
0: Julio, that guidance sounds a little familiar. Yes, Solomon. Um,
1: similar uh, regulatory guidelines were issued during the Great Recession when regulatory agencies encourages bankers to work with borrowers. Bankers in reliance on the guidelines work out loans, refinance, restructure, some of the loans portfolio. However, at the time the FDIC showed those, some of those banks, the FDIC uh, criticized those loans as imprudent.
0: Right. And those loans, actually, some of them were the basis for the lawsuits by the FDIC against the bankers. And yeah, and just also right. side note when we say the FDIC brings the lawsuits, it's the FDIC as receiver. It's not the FDIC itself. I'm just and one other side note. I'm just going to get it out there. It's actually not. We we've mentioned many times that the FDIC shuts down banks, but what we really mean is that the FDIC doesn't the actual want to close a bank. It would be the one it would be the entity that gave the bank its charter, which a lot of times is going to be a state institution. It it depends, it varies, but the FDIC heavily influences that entity to close the bank. Now that we've got those disclaimers out of the way, let's go on to lesson number three. This one is admittedly easier said than done, and I'm prefacing it, but the general idea is try to take whatever steps you can to avoid being shut down. Generally, A lot of times when banks get into trouble is when there's insufficient liquidity and there's insufficient capital. And again, the FDIC and the regulators do have the ability to affect capital and liquidity levels through their examinations. And so therefore it's not gonna always necessarily be in the banker's ability to control, especially to the extent capital depends on economic environments, like we discussed with the reserve and the capital. So that's based on the economy, not something the bankers could control. But the bankers could try and control is the amount of capital they currently have now and the amount of liquidity they have liquidity they have now. As of yet, we haven't had economic crisis, at least as it goes to real estate values. Values seem to be more or less stable. So now is the time to try and bolster your capital reserves and bolster your liquidity also and make sure you have stable, f- stable sources of liquidity because now it's going to be easier to raise it now as opposed to waiting until you're actual in a, actually in a crisis, which at that point in time is much harder to bolster those reserves. So act now and try and bolster them. Julio, are you going to tell us lesson number four?
1: Yes. Make sure that you have adequate directors and officers insurance. Even if your bank is shut down and you're sued by the FDIC, you can fight the FDIC in court, but it will be very costly. DNO insurance can provide coverage to defend against social lawsuits and to pay any settlement funds. But just make sure that, in fact, the insurance policy contains the necessary provisions.
0: Right, because. Julio, it's one thing to buy insurance, but many times insurers, as a general rule, aren't too happy to pay out, again, generalizing, to pay out on claims because they make money by taking premiums and paying out as little as possible. So a lot of times, in addition to having litigation with the FDIC, there's also litigation with the insurers who are maybe relying on certain provisions to deny coverage. So in addition to making sure that you have enough coverage you also need to make sure that you have the proper type of coverage. And that's why it's very important to speak to an attorney or somebody who's knowledgeable as to these specific issues. And on to lesson number five is to know when to pull the plug. And this one is, is really tricky, especially when you're dealing with a, a large construction loan, is that sometimes the economy goes bad. And the question is, does the bank continue funding the project to then... Hope and hope that the developer can sell out the units when the project is done, or does the bank just cut its losses and pull the project? Now, it's never easy to make that decision, but sometimes the correct decision is to not throw good money after bad, and don't be afraid to make that decision if it is the correct decision. And Julio, lesson number six. Bankers,
1: document everything, and do it often. There may be a great reason why you bankers decide to extend a loan to a particular borrower, but unless that reason is written down, it leaves the door open for the FDIC to argue that the extension was unwarranted. Memories fade and people pass, but what is reading endures. And those reading documents could be key to defending against a lawsuit brought by the FDIC.
0: And Julio, I'm going to expand a little bit on that where we were just, I was just talking about when a bank has to make a decision whether to stop a loan or to continue advances under the loan agreement. And when a bank does that, there are many, many considerations. And I'll just give you some that I've seen that for if the bank were to stop funding the loan and wait for the economy to get better before continuing advances well then many times the construction firm will remove the heavy equipment there will be a fee to do that and there will be a fee to later bring it back and start up construction again additionally if a building is half constructed you're leaving it open to the elements the the beams may start corroding you may have squatters that move in you may get sued by the developer for not continuing to advance funds under the loan agreement. And you also, the banker, may know that hey, that we've been working with the spiral war for the past 10 years and he really does his best to pay back. And our economist told us that the economy should be better in two years when this loan is going to be in time for repayment with the units being sold. So all those are very important considerations that loan officers I'm sure are considering, but you need to make sure it's documented and it has to be written down. And one other example, one other thing that should be written down is how much can we sell a half constructed building for versus what could we expect it to sell out when we're done constructing the building? So again, consider all the variables that go into extending a loan, but at the same time, make sure they're all written down to sum up. We have talked about the FDIC's various roles. It serves as an insurer. It also serves as a regulator, making the rules of the banks that the banks have to adhere to. It also serves as, in this regulation role, it also inspects the banks and gives them CAMEL ratings. And those are the CAMEL ratings that you should not rely on because when the FDIC comes in its final role, is when banks are shut down, it many times decides to sue the loan officers or the bank directors. And CAMELS alone will not protect you from that lawsuit as a general rule. So therefore, we recommend that you, to the extent possible, implement the other suggestions that we have in our podcast. Thank you for listening to the Litigation Room podcast series. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only, and should not be relied on as if it were legal advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Rivero Mestre. Join us soon for another interesting discussion.